Well, good morning, everybody. I'd also like to extend my uh, welcome and invitation to you. My name is Josh Wall. I'm a pastor on staff here at Fifth, along with Marsha and John. And it is good to be here. It is good to worship. Uh, and it's good to come before you. The section in the text we're dealing with today, uh, we're working through this series, as Chris talked about, that we're calling Stories Old and New. And we're looking at new stories of God's faithfulness, and we're looking at old stories of God's faithfulness, especially following along with the Jesus Storybook Bible, because we have kids with us in worship, and we're trying to look at some of these old familiar stories, in, and in many ways, new ways, right? Sometimes these stories can be tricky to deal with, uh, not because sometimes they're complex, sometimes they're not, but often it can be hard because some of us grew up, if you grew up in the era of flannel graph, sometimes that's how we picture these stories, it's nothing but flannel graph. Maybe you taught the flannel graph, maybe you saw it, but there is a, a tendency to approach these and think, oh, I know this one, I got this. And as we engage in this, we want to invite you to listen and think anew and just see what God has to say in the midst of all of this. So I want to, I want to pray and then, uh, and then we're going to start. Heavenly Father, we come to you this day well, with many things. Some of us come from a place of thanksgiving and rejoicing. So we celebrate new babies. And some of us come from places of, of loss and of pain. Of friends and family who have died to this life. Or of miscarriages along the way. Or of pain and hurt and hardship. Or of tension and anxiety. Some of us don't know why we're here. Because someone invited us and we said yes, and we're not sure how we feel about this whole God-Jesus thing. Some of us, this is home, and we come and are relaxed and comfortable. God, in all of that, with whatever we bring, we pray that you show up for us. Stir something within us. Provoke us in the best kind of ways, and may we encounter you in this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A giant staircase to heaven, the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11. Noah and his family lived in the land, and his children had children, and those children had more children, and then those children had even more, well, you get the picture until there were lots of people living on the earth once more. Now back then, everyone spoke the same language. So you didn't need to learn Swahili or Japanese or anything, because you could say hello to anyone, and they knew what you meant. One day, everyone was talking, and they came up with an idea. Let's build ourselves a beautiful city to live in. It can be our home, and we'll be safe forever and ever. Then they had another idea. And let's build a really tall tower to reach up to heaven. Yes, they said. We'll say, look at us up here. And everyone will look up to us. And we'll look down on them. And then we'll know that we're something. We'll be like God. We'll be famous and safe and happy and everything will be all right. So they got to work. Brick by brick, the tower grew higher and higher 
until it soared above the city, touching the sky. They built stairs in the tower to climb to its top. It was like a giant staircase to heaven. Look, they cheered. We're the ones. See what we can do with our own hands? They were quite pleased with themselves. But God wasn't pleased with them. God could see what they were doing. They were trying to live without him. But God knew that wouldn't make them happy or safe or anything. If they kept on like this, they would only destroy themselves. And God loved them too much to let that happen. So he stopped their plans. One morning, they went to work as usual, but everything was different. Their words were all new and funny. You see, God had given each person a completely different language. Suddenly, no one understood what anyone else was saying. Someone would say, how do you do? And the other person thought they had said, how ugly are you? It wasn't funny. You could be saying something really nice, like, such a lovely morning, and get a punch in the nose because someone had thought you had said, hush up, you're boring. You couldn't even say, pardon, to make sure that you'd heard correctly because no one understood that word either. It wasn't easy to work together after that, as you can imagine. People were always quarreling and fighting and getting in a dreadful muddle and becoming grumpier and grumpier until at last they were all too cross to keep on building, and they just had to stop. After that, people scattered all over the earth, which is why we ended up with so many different languages today. You see, God knew, however high they reached, however hard they tried, people could never get back to heaven by themselves. People didn't need a staircase. They needed a rescuer. Because the way back to heaven wasn't a staircase. It was a person. People could never reach up to heaven, so heaven would have to come down to them. And one day, it would. Thanks, Krista. So the Tower of Babel. It's kind of a tricky story. Again, in that flannel graph kind of way, in what do we do with this? What do we have to say? What is there in the middle of this? And, and I think that in many ways, uh, understanding the context and getting the right entry into the story sets up a bunch of it. And for me, as, as I studied and prepared and prayed and went through the things that you do before you, before you prepare a sermon, as you prepare a sermon... There was a lot of abstraction, and then all of a sudden it just kind of clicked and swung around in regards to what it meant for me in my life, and, and I'm hoping that maybe you'll experience something like that as well. But uh, it's important that in order to get a glimpse of where we've been, we need to get a glimpse of where we've been in order to understand this story, and to do that, we need to start in the beginning. So we need to understand context, and we need to understand the stories that lead up to this. 
This is the, the last story in what's called the, the prehistory narratives of the book of Genesis. The first 11 chapters are this section of these big sweeping narratives of this big brush of telling these big stories that are expressive and dynamic and saying what's going on. And by saying it's prehistory, that doesn't mean it's not historical. It just means that it's before the time uh, and that it occurred and was written before the time when we would chronologically list things out and try to attach dates and times and those kinds of things. Because we're dealing with generational kinds of change, right? Big sweeping times and eras. So, so to understand the beginning, right, it starts in the beginning. And in the beginning there was God and God's spirit hovered over these chaotic waters that is the universe. And it pulsates in it. It vibrates and then begins to divide and separate, right? And it makes light and dark. And then out of that it creates the heavens and the earth. And then it splits the earth into the earth and the water. And then it begins to populate things throughout it goes. God creates and builds this creation that is good and makes fish and makes birds and makes animals and ends up making us, makes people. Man, male and female, he created them. And it was good when he looks over his whole creation. And then we shift lenses and we shift stories and suddenly then we are in the garden, right? And it's a, it's a different lens on what's going on. And, and God has created animals and creates people to be image bearers of himself. Different than everything else that's out there. Different than worms, different than zebras, different than cats and dogs. And pick your animal. Different than dolphins, smart as they may be. We were made different. And we are made with this, with this divine sense of call that we are image bearers, that we are stewards, that we are to have dominion, which means that there's a sense of a, a shopkeeper mentality, an ownership that goes on. And not that we are the owners, but that we have a sense of duty and obligation to do things in the world that we find ourselves. So God says, go forth, multiply, spread, go, 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 go make, create, build, take over. However, people do what people do. And even though they had basically one job, they had one job or one thing not to do, we still messed it up. Sin and brokenness and blame and shame seep into the world. And God says, okay, we have to leave the garden and, and you have to go do this elsewhere now. So people do. And generations come and people have babies and people are born and people die. And the years go by and by. And as they do, the, the brokenness, the, the pain, the hurt, the sin becomes more manifest and bleeds in more and more. Until it gets to the point that God finally says, all right, enough, enough. We can't do this anymore. We got off the rails. We're starting afresh. And so we're going to clean the slate with everybody except for this very small group. So he selects Noah's family. Noah, his wife, his sons, their wives, a small little clan, a small remnant of animals, sticks them in a life raft functionally, and then says, we're going to start the world over. And it rains, and the world drowns and is destroyed. Let's, let's say that again, because this is, this is helpful to understand. God takes a small remnant of people and animals of life, of the things that he made, that he cares for, sticks them in a life raft, wipes everything out to start again. I don't know uh, if you know anyone that has had a fire in their house where their house burned down, and they lost all their stuff. They lost pictures and clothes and toys. 
And everyone, this has happened to probably three or four families I know, they always say the same thing. They always say, it's just stuff. We are all safe. We are so thankful. And it's oddly hard to get over the fact that you lost all your stuff. That you lost your pictures, that you lost your toys, that you lost your keepsake that meant so much to you because suddenly it is all gone. Noah and his tribe step off of a boat where everything is gone. Livestock, houses, infrastructure, plumbing, as much as it may or may not have existed. Homes, where they will sleep tonight is gloriously unknown. And they have lost everything. And into that, uh, God, God comes and says this from Genesis 8. Uh, da, 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 da. Ken, can we go to that slide? There we go. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wives and your sons and their wives. Bring every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase on number of, uh, in the number of it. So they come out, and God, they look at the desolation before them, and God gives them basically the same commandment that he gave to Adam and Eve. And then he elaborates again on verse 9. And as for you, be fruitful and increase in number and multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, etc., etc., etc. I establish my covenant. We're going at it again. But my question, friends, is still the same. You are with that remnant. You have emerged from a life raft. You come out to desolation and destruction. And if I were in there, I don't know. How are you not overwhelmed with it all? If you step out into that boat, how are you not overwhelmed with everything that's before you? I have twins. Uh, I have two, two little girls, Anna and Jenny. They are both three. They're cute and super adorable now. Um, Twins were not part of the script for my life. Twins were not part of the plan. They were not scheduled. Uh, We don't know where they came from. Right now, we are incredibly happy that we have twins. They are delightful. When they first came, we kind of thought our life was over. Not, Not kind of. I believe Megan's first words out when she found out that she had twins were, oh my gosh, my life is over. Um... They were unexpected and put us into shock. We spent weeks, at least, if not a couple months, of just going, how in the world are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And so then we came up with a plan. And the plan, uh, the plan was basically my mom. Um, <laughs> ironically, I wrote this sermon a while ago. My mom is now here. Um, so this is super awkward, uh, but there you go, mom. Thank you. So, so our plan was my mom. And the reason my mom was the plan is my mom is one of those good-hearted suckers, I mean souls, <laughs> that loves to help and will volunteer to help in almost every situation, right? She doesn't live here, but Jake, you could totally get her for IHN, right? Like she would sign up. You all should too. Um, 
So, so the plan was, we'll talk with my mom. She had just retired. She had some time. She loves babies, and she is a good-hearted soul. So she'll come and stay with us and help us try to survive things like trying to dual breastfeed infants at three in the morning when you just need more hands because there's two babies, um, and we needed help, and one of us needed to sleep at some time throughout the night. So the plan was my mom. Uh, however, we live in a 103-year-old house over in Easttown, um, it's a four square. It's a three bedroom, one and a half bath. Um, it works great. We love it. However, we had just packed out all three of our bedrooms when these twins came. We had one. We had an older son that had one. Twins took the third. And we thought, oh man, mom will stay a lot longer if we can give her a bed to sleep on versus a couch. <laughs> See, we're smart. So what we decided was our plan was my mom and we needed to give her a place to sleep. And if we gave her a place to sleep, we thought she would stick around longer and help us survive better. So we have a walk-up attic. Our walk-up attic was poorly built out. It was a hot mess. But the idea was, is like, all right, well, I am handy-ish. We can figure this out. I can do this. This is okay. And so you would open up the door to our attic. You'd walk up five steps around an awkward corner, walk up five more, and there was this big open space. And so I can do this. We can do this. We'll be fine. And so we, which is really I, because I had a wife who was getting increasingly pregnant, started to do the work that's involved in building that out. Had to rip out the old cheap paneling, had to rip out, they had styrofoam cooler tacked to the underside of the roof deck for insulation, had to pull all that out and build it all in right and proper in the way it should be. And so five days a week, after work and, be- work and dinner and bedtime, around 8.30, I'd open the door to my closet, or to my attic, walk up my five steps, turn an awkward corner, walk up five more, and go to work. Night after night, week after week, five steps, awkward corner, five more steps. It did not take that long before I began to hate that room. Within a couple of weeks, I didn't like it. And shortly after that, I could feel stress in my shoulders just tense up. I would find myself stalling and washing extra dishes because I didn't want to have to go up and work on the attic. I began to just hate that room. Actually, it took me a couple of years before I finally got to the point where I could go up there and not just feel something. And nothing went wrong. It all went fine. But the process of building it out, and that's not my first project and it won't be my last, but something about that one, building it out, just caused me stress. And I hated it. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be with Noah and his tribe, to walk off the ark and go, I have to rebuild what? Everything is gone. And we have to start from, from new, from fresh. But that's what they do. And they go. And they, they do this work. And how long do you have to do it before it's bone-grindingly tired? A year, five, ten, a decade, a generation, two generations. 
But they go and they do this work and they, they, they build things and they have families and their families spread out and they do what God has commanded them to do, to go be fruitful and multiply and have dominion and they go out. And then most of the time they're doing this. The Middle East, for the most part, is one of two types of terrain. It tends to be either mountainous and rocky, of which there is little shrub bushes that are like this tall that barely somehow live and maybe trees that get up to about six feet or... Uh, and that, that is the majority. There's sections of desert and sand that are seas of sand, but most of it is rocky, mountainous, and dry scrub. scrub. And then you come to these places that are these oases, that are places that are green and lush, that feel like what it is here where there is water and life. And the story tells us that, that they were in the mountains, that they were in the hills, that they were in the land, building and going things out generations after Noah, descendants upon descendants, that the earth is getting populated, that it is growing out, and that suddenly they come across these plains, the plains of Shinar. And there's these plains that are green and lush and vibrant. <clears throat> And that is you, my friends. If you are in that tribe and for generations you have been exhausted trying to create a life or rebuild a life out of nothing, and then you come across a place where there is trees and water and food, I think they would probably do what most of us would do is first I'd jump in and take a dip and then I would go sit under a tree and just go, oh, oh my gosh. And relax because suddenly life feels good. And life feels easy. And then you call your friends. Well, not call. You send your youngest kid that can survive the trip to go get your friends. And your family. And you invite them over because you found the place where you should live. Where life is good and life is easy. And suddenly you have neighbors who move in. And you have more neighbors. And things begin to build up and build up and build up. The problem is is that this goes against the call and the command that God gave them. Right? to go uh, be fruitful, to go spread out, to go scatter and populate and create things around the world. And, and, and they decide not to do that. They sit down, they stay down, they put down roots, and they never move again. I don't think they do this on purpose, right? I don't think that anyone was going like, well, I don't want to do, forget this, I am staying here forever. I'm much more willing to bet that they sat down And they said like, all right, yep, nope, no, I need to go over there just a little bit longer here. And so they put down roots and they establish and they begin to build these cities around themselves. There's there's an Old Testament theologian and scholar named Walter Brueggemann uh, who, who says this. That, that this city that they make, the city of Babel, is a self-made unity in which humanity has its own fortress mentality. It seeks to survive on its own resources. It is a unity grounded in fear and coercion. So these people, they come, they come, and they are exhausted, and they are tired, and then they build this place where they sit and they settle around one another. And even while the call of God is to go out, to spread out, and I think they're probably still on board with that, it's going to be a little bit longer. Just wait till I finish here. Let me finish this up. And slowly a city forms and slowly a tower forms. And to be honest, this is, this is the moment for me that as I unpacked and things started to swing around, that things started to click for me to some degree. 
because some interpretations of the story and interpretations of this text talk about that they're building this tower to, to rebel against God or show while they're more important or they're going to go and take over and look how great and amazing we are. But that never really resonated with me, right? There haven't been a lot of times where I've said like, I am more important than God and we're gonna, we're, I'm declaring war on the Almighty. It's not a phrase that comes up that often. But if we understand that they were building cities of comfort for themselves, that they were building building towers of comfort for their own stability and ease. Well, man, I've done that. I do not have to look that far in my life, friends, to find the places where God has called me or prompted me or said, you should go do this. And I've gone, yeah, but just a minute. Let me do this first. I am tired. I am weary. It's been a long day. And brick by brick, I build walls and cities and towers of my own comfort towards myself. It is never intentional. I am not out to try to defy God. I am not trying to be difficult. I am just tired. And at the end of the day, I come home and there's these moments, right? There are just moments in life when I have the opportunity to step out in faith or to try something new and it's going to threaten or challenge my own sense of comfort and stability. And maybe that's financial. Maybe that's what I do with my time. Maybe that's with status and pride. But there's times when there's an opportunity to do something and I don't. Or I say just a minute. Or there's times with with kids when we want to protect and shelter and guard them for their comfort and for ours. And sometimes we get to the stage where you can just live out. And I spent 18 years working as a youth pastor and parents who were the most well-intentioned, God-honoring people that would just hover and say, I'm not a helicopter parent. I don't want to be a helicopter parent as they surround and smother their kid. We make so many decisions based on our own function and level of comfort. We just want to be relaxed at the end of a night. And it's been a long day. And things have finally settled down. And then we see the bottle on the shelf or the laptop that goes to the webpage we shouldn't spend time. And we don't mean to, but we just want to be comfortable and we're tired. Friends, Brick by brick, the people in this story and you and I have a temptation to build towers and walls and cities to our own priorities and choices and comforts and ease, especially as Western American Christians, where we are wealthy by world standards and any stretch of the imagination, and we continue to choose things that don't involve sacrifice, that don't involve putting ourselves on the line because we, because I am tired or afraid. Now here's the thing I need to say, is that there have been many times and many situations, and maybe this has occurred to you or maybe not, when people that look like me or that sound like me or have my role have stood up in front of a congregation and a group of people and said something like that and then followed it up with, if only you would dot, 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 you would be accepted. You would be loved. You would be cared for. If only you gave more. 
If only you worked harder. If only you signed up for the program that you said you wanted to sign up for and then you didn't do it and now we're in trouble because I don't know. If only, if only, if only. And too often from the pulpit, there has been a message of guilt or of shame or of if only you worked harder. And that is fundamentally wrong and that is not what this sermon is about. If we have an identity that is found in the person and work of Jesus, then the, the words that God says to his son, the only ones we have recorded actually, the words that God says to his son are the words that God says to us, which are, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love, and them I am well pleased. Right? The, the posture of the father is the one of the, the dad in the story of the prodigal son where the son says, forget you, I want nothing to do with you. You are dead to me. Give me my money so I can go and goes and leaves and it breaks his father's heart. And then he, the father stands waiting, looking on the horizon to see his son's head pop over the hill. And as soon as he does, he tears off running. Friends, most of us do not have to look far to realize that we are all prodigal children that we have all made mistakes, that we continue to make mistakes. And that even when we know what is the right thing, we slow roll the process or we don't choose to engage. But the posture of God is one of acceptance and love that knows what you do and accepts you regardless. Right? We are fully accepted and embraced in what this means. And yet the call is still there. We are called to be children of God who are embraced and wrapped up and then told to go out, to multiply, to create, and to do. And for the times that you do, that is awesome, great, good job. And that the times that you don't, just like you would if you have a kid of your own, you you're still will love them and embrace them and support them. Faith is not something that works out of guilt or shame, but it works out of an identity that is founded in the work of Jesus Christ and a God who gives us peace that changes the way the world is for us, that there is a resurrection that restored us to something greater than ourselves. Friends, deep down, at the end of life, we know we don't want to be surrounded by a pile of empty bricks but we want to see that we've been part of a divine plan. And I don't know what God has before you, and I don't know where God is calling you. But I want to encourage you in those times to put down the brick, to choose to embrace something else, to lean into where that could go. And even if you don't, even if you find yourself walled in and surrounded, know that there is a God who loves you, who accepts you, who died for you to redeem you, even if you've buried yourself in bricks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Daddy, we come to you to meet you. We come not to work, not to serve, not uh, to, to hear a sermon or to have something happen to us. We come not to be passive agents, but we come because we want to be your children. We want to be adopted by a heavenly father who loves us and accepts us regardless of what we do. 
regardless of what we continue to do. We are sorry for the bricks that we place, for the choices that we have made. I am sorry for the bricks that I lay. I pray that you will help me be the son that you imagine me to be and help us all to be the sons and daughters you imagine us to be. May we be good news for your world and good news for this neighborhood, in this city, in this place. Thank you for Jesus and that we can come and encounter and approach you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.